Good morning. You made it. I'm very impressed with you. Uh, some of you guys, you're here because you wanted to try out your, your new four-wheel drive vehicle, aren't you? I know. Uh, doesn't that announcement guy remind you a little bit of like what Jesus might look like if he was from Dubuque or something, you know? He does a good job. Uh, Hey, if you're new here, welcome. My name is Ryan. I'm on the teaching team. Uh, if you've never seen me before, that's because normally I serve up at our DeForest campus, and it's just a pleasure to be uh, with you guys here today. So thanks for coming. Uh, we are continuing in our series in the book of Philippians, which is more, uh, not so much a book, more like a letter. Actually, it is a letter that Paul wrote to a fledgling church in the city called Philippi, and it is powerful. So we're really excited uh, to be in this book uh, with you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up or turn it on to Philippians chapter 1. We'll get there in a little bit. Just want to set this up. So this might be a weird way to start a sermon, but I want to start with a little bit of a thought experiment. Uh, so imagine that I was going to offer you a thousand uh, dollars and the catch is that you have to walk up to a total stranger and you have to give them your honest, full-fledged opinion on one of the following topics, okay? Uh, here we go. The election, stem cell research, immigration, gay marriage, Black Lives Matter, the impeachment, mandatory vaccinations. Are you uncomfortable yet? <laughs> or the weather. Like, do you have to choose one of those? Which one will you choose for $1,000? This is why we talk about the weather so much, right? <laughs> Some of you were like, I don't think I should be here today, <laughs> you know, already. Uh, isn't it, have you ever like wondered why we have so much anxiety around some of these deeply held values. Like, why is it so hard to talk to someone else that we know might disagree with us? Research by psychologist Linda Skitka, that's not a joke, that's actually her name, calls this social distancing. In other words, uh, what happens when we, we have to talk about our moral convictions and we know someone might or definitely does disagree with us, we tend to distance ourselves from them, and literally, uh, even like physically, we'll, we'll move chairs, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get away from that person. So that's kind of uh, political stuff. And this sermon is not about all those kind of political issues. Uh, that's maybe for another time, uh, more of a living room conversation with your small group. Uh, but I do wanna bring this home for us a little bit because if you call yourself a Christian, you have a deeply held moral conviction about the person of Jesus that's summed up in this message that we call the gospel. And I wanna ask you, have you ever avoided someone that who you know is opposed to your faith or have you ever been in a conversation with someone and you have avoided the topic of your faith? ever, even once. Of course you have. I have. <laughs> of course you have. What's going on here? Jim Gaffigan, the great comedian, sums it up very well when he says, does anything make you feel more uncomfortable than some stranger going, I'd like to talk to you about Jesus, <laughs> right? Is this a problem? Yeah, it's a problem. It's a problem because Jesus' instructions to his followers in Acts chapter 1 was to be his witnesses, starting in our, our families, our local neighborhoods, 
our regions, and to the rest of the world. We are called by God to, to, be, um, to carry on the Jesus movement, the movement of liberation and hope and compassion and holiness and love and reconciliation to God and each other. But it's very, very difficult to do that. Brett McCracken, uh, he's a Christian author and he wrote a book called Uncomfortable and it's a great book uh, and here's what he says, it's uncomfortable to share our faith with people in our immediate context because we have to continue to do life with them and it might get awkward if we bring up Jesus. Can I get an amen? But if we don't approach our day-to-day lives, neighborhoods, workplaces, and relationships through the lens of mission, we're doing it wrong. I need a second amen for that. So uh, t- typically what kind of happens is uh, we well-meaning, well-intentioned Christians fall into uh, what I would just call a witnessing trap. So here are just four of them. Uh, the first one is that we do share the gospel with each other. <laughs> Right? We get together with Christian friends, we talk about Jesus, and, and it's great. We go to conferences, and we have Bible studies, and we, we do all these Christian things, being Christian and sharing the gospel in a Christian bubble, right? And when salt, you know, we're called to be salt and light, salt gets together and gets saltier, and light gets together and gets, I don't know, lightier, you know? Uh, and we don't actually share the gospel uh, beyond people who have already Heard it. Okay, so that's one. Another one is we, we can keep our faith private, right? And that's a huge idea in our culture. And it, it might sound even a little bit biblical. Like, I don't want to push faith on them, uh, which is actually a good thing. But the problem is that idea of having a private faith is not biblical at all. It actually comes out of humanistic philosophy. And it's the idea that you do you and I do me, and as long as we don't hurt each other, everything's going to be okay. But that is not what we're called to do. Uh, number three, we hide behind slogans, right? And a, a perfect example of this is the Christian bumper sticker industry. So I don't know, have you seen any of these? Try Jesus. If you don't like him, Satan will always take you back, right? You ever seen someone converted by that? Me neither. Honk if you love Jesus. Text if you want to see him. That's a good one. My mind was changed by a bumper sticker. Said no one ever. That's, that's true. Uh, this is one of my favorites. It's been around since the 90s. Uh, it says, I don't know if you can see it, in case of rapture, the, this car will be unmanned. <laughs> that gives me confidence, right? Uh, and you might be... Like, you might sit here going, oh, I would never put a bumper sticker on my car. And I, by the way, I'm not anti-bumper sticker here. Uh, I have a point to this. Uh, but we do the same thing on social media. So this is, really, this is just bumper sticker for the 21st century. Uh, so I don't know if you've seen a, like a, a social media post like this on Facebook or Instagram. You've got a scripture verse with a cool background. And somewhere there's a, a silhouette of someone with their arms open. You know, bonus points if they're overlooking a beautiful landscape. You've seen this, right? You know what I'm talking about. So we tend to hide behind slogans. I think the one, though, that resonates with with most of us the most is the fourth one, which is where we take the passive approach. Do we have that fourth one there? We take the passive 
approach. And the idea here is that I am going to live my life and be like Jesus so well that through my example, I'm going to share the gospel. But we don't say is that hopefully that means I'll never have to actually say anything that might upset someone, right? And this is, this is kind of borrowed from this uh, quote that's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, which says, uh, I will preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Great idea, right? Great idea. The problem is that he never actually said that, and it's nowhere to be found in Scripture. The gospel, the Christian gospel, is fundamentally shared through words. Its credibility is given by our lives and by our witness. But the gospel is a message that's shared through words, so it requires, by its definition, conversation. Conversation between two people who see the world in vastly different ways. And conversation requires trust, doesn't it? At least meaningful conversation requires trust, and trust requires time. And you can't give someone who disagrees with you on everything, your time until you can learn to sacrificially love like Jesus. And so, sharing the gospel, the good news about our lostness as sinners, our separation from God, and how Jesus stepped into that darkness to die and pay the penalty that we should have paid so that we can be reconciled to God and each other. That's the gospel message. And it's not about technique or talking points or slogans. It is about, it's an intensely personal, terribly inconvenient and very risky endeavor that takes a lot of time. But it is the most loving thing a person, a Christian person, can do. In fact, when we do that, we're following in the footsteps of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so here's what Paul shows us in Philippians chapter 1. He shows us that the gospel the message, the good news about Jesus is fundamentally different than any other message that we could ever share. It's fundamentally different than any movement that has ever existed on the planet because the gospel itself is different. In Romans chapter one, Paul describes the gospel as the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes. The gospel it is an embodiment of the power of God to save people. And this is, this is really good news for us. Because it means that it has power in and of itself. It's, I would even say it's viral. The, the gospel is viral. And I, I chose the, the title of this sermon, which is Viral Gospel, before I really knew about coronavirus. So I don't want to like uh, mix metaphors too much. But I think, I think there's a parallel here because something that's viral is something that cannot be stopped. You push it down here and it pops up in five other places over here. And that's what the gospel is like. So we're going to look at uh, this section, the, the rest of chapter 1, starting in verse 12 of Philippians, and Paul's going to show us what the viral gospel is, how it changes who we are, and then how it changes what we do. So just to set it up, Paul's writing this letter to this Philippian church. Uh, he is in trouble. 
He is in prison, and he's likely in Rome, which is about 800 miles away from the city of Philippi. And he's awaiting a trial because of his gospel message uh, that will result either in his release or his death. Can you relate? Yeah, neither can I. Neither can I. So he writes, he's writing to this frightened Philippian church because what they're thinking is maybe this is the end of the Jesus movement. Maybe it's going to be shut down. But he encourages us here. So go ahead and open up to uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. We're going to go all the way through uh, verse 20 in this first section. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. So what's Paul saying here? He's saying that everything that's happened to him, the beatings, the imprisonment, and this impending trial, uh, has actually had the opposite of the intended effect. Because what was it supposed to do? It was supposed to shut down the gospel's advance, or at least slow it down and frustrate it. But he says, actually, that's a powerful word, actually those things have done the very opposite. They have been a part of the advance of the gospel. And he gives a couple examples. In verse 13, he talks about the, the whole palace guard. They know the reason that I'm in chains. They're, they're, they might not know who Jesus is, but they're talking about him. Uh, and then he says in verse 14, the Christians in Rome who should have been terrified knowing that their leader is in prison in Rome awaiting trial, they haven't shrunk back. They're actually emboldened in their proclamation. I want to show you uh, what it says in verse 12 again. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually, and that's a powerful, powerful word, served to advance the gospel. Now, advance literally means uh, to, to forge new territory in the face of opposition. It's a military term. It's a military term, right? So picture, you're, like, you're a Christian in Philippi, this, this Roman city, and you're facing opposition. You know Paul is facing opposition, and you're like, I'm not sure this is going to work out, right? I think this thing might get shut down. But the, there's power in the word actually. 
And this is what Paul is trying to get us to grips with. Because movements do die. Movements, ideas, they spread, but they do die. And there are lots of reasons that they do that. And Paul gives us three. Uh, Movements die when there's opposition. And Paul was facing opposition. Uh, The believers in Philippi were facing opposition. Uh, And guys, we face opposition too. There was a, a very recent study done by the George Barna Research um, I don't know what it's called, George Bonner Research, you can Google it, uh, looking at 50 cities across the U.S. and asking people in those cities, how often do you go to church, how often do you pray, how often do you, like, do you believe in God, questions like that, and what, what they've determined is this list of the most un, or, uh, sorry, post-Christian cities in America, and Madison is number 11 on that list which makes us more post-Christian than Las Vegas, uh, San Francisco, Chicago, and New York. That's, that's crazy. We don't face the same kind of opposition and fear the life and death kind of thing that Paul and the, the church in Philippians were facing, but we do face opposition and we feel it, right? But what Paul is saying is that the gospel, the viral gospel, isn't slowed down or shut down by opposition. And guys, China is a really good example of that. China's been on like number 10 on the list of the most repressive countries uh, in the world for a long time, the communist regime. And the church has really struggled there, but it's also exploded there. It's gone underground. And uh, the, the... Council on Foreign Relations has said that China is on track to have, this is a quote, the world's largest population of Christians by the year 2030. The gospel is different. It's viral. It's resilient. Most movements also get shut down when there's bad press. And you heard Paul talking about these Christian teachers who were in these different theological camps who were preaching Christ but discrediting Paul, right? And Paul's saying, "Ah, what does it matter? Christ is preached. Like, it's any press is good press for Jesus and the gospel. And it kind of reminds me of P.T. Barnum saying, there's no such thing as bad publicity. And apparently, when it comes to the gospel, it's true. Finally, he says, uh, movements die typically when the leader is taken out. But Paul said in verse 20, look, I eagerly expect and hope that I won't be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now and as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. See, if you want to stop a movement, you take out its leader. And that's worked throughout all of human history. Uh, a really good example of this is back in 1519 when uh, Cortez was invading what we now call South America and the Spanish came in and they were conquering civilization after civilization by taking out their leaders. And as, as Spain moved inward and upward to what we now call northern Mexico, they encountered a people that was vastly different the Aztecs, and they had no cities, no government, no uh, military, no technology to speak of, but they were impossible to shut down because every time the Spanish would attack, they would disperse and new leaders would pop up wherever they were. And they resisted Spain for 200 years until Spain finally ran out of gas. The gospel movement is a lot 
like that. You know, leadership in the church is a gift from God. We read about that in Romans chapter 12, verses six through eight. But what that does not mean is that uh, the work of the church is dependent on the leaders. See, because the church is a movement where every follower of Christ has been brought into the movement and fully empowered and commissioned to carry out the mission everywhere they go. That's 1 Peter 2, verse 9. So the viral gospel is this resilient, powerful movement. It's not stopped by the things that normally stop other movements. And guys, what this means is that if you call yourself a Christian, you are not a part of an institution. You're a part of a revolution. A revolution that unlike any other human movement is God inaugurated and God empowered. And that's really good news. What it means is you and I can't mess it up. Not too badly, anyway. It means that our lack of preparedness uh, is nothing compared to the Holy Spirit's power in us. That's really, really good news and should fill us with incredible courage. Now, we talked about what the viral gospel is. Now Paul's gonna talk about how an encounter with this gospel changes who we are. It changes us into the type of people who can actually be a part of this movement. Uh, So we're gonna pick up in verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. More on that in just a few minutes. If I am uh, to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ, Jesus will abound on account of of me. Doesn't Paul sound like an eternal optimist here? I think he does. I mean, he's faced with this impossible choice, you guys. A choice that honestly probably none of us can relate to. I'm awaiting trial, right? I'm picturing myself in Paul's shoes, and they're going to decide whether I live and can and continue to suffer and get beat and pushed around because of my proclamation of the gospel or to die and to face a, a death sentence. It's an impossible choice, but he seems pretty upbeat about this, doesn't he? And I just want to address this for a second. Because Midwesterners are not optimists, like naturally. Most of us aren't. We don't naturally gravitate to like overly sunny people, mostly. Like we don't uh, gravitate necessarily to people who promise too much. That's why when I talk about or say the word politician, there's like an eyebrow that gets raised somewhere in your brain or your heart, like, I'm not so sure about that. So we're not like naturally optimists, but we're not pessimists either. Like we're not necessarily doom and gloom people, um, but we are realists. And when you're a realist, it means that you don't expect the worst, but you're prepared for it, and I can prove it. If your parents grew up around here, they definitely taught you to have a duffel bag full of snow gear in the trunk of your car, right? Uh, Around this time of year. 
So we're like, we're like be prepared people. That's what realists are. So my question here is, do you think Paul is being real? Or is he just putting on a brave face? And I don't want to steal the thunder of those, the, the guys who are going to teach ahead of me, but I want to just skip ahead a little bit and look uh, at Philippians, at some of the struggles that Paul is very vulnerable about. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 27, he talks about his sorrow. In chapter 2, 28, he talks about his anxiety. Chapter 3, verse 10, he talks about his suffering. In 4, 14, he talks about his troubles. So Paul is not pretending that everything's just rosy and okay, and he doesn't care. He's actually fine whether he lives or dies. No, what he's showing us is that in his circumstances, there's an overriding reality going on, a deeper anchor that's going on, and it can only come through an identity change, an encounter with the viral gospel. And he describes it in this curious motto in verse 21. We read it earlier. I'm going to show it to you again. He says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Okay. I mean, at first glance, we kind of get what this means, right? But look at the words. You grab our Nazis, in just a moment, you're going to be like, oh, that doesn't make sense at all. And you're right. In the English, it's kind of like ambiguous. It kind of doesn't make sense. But I think the translators do a phenomenal job of capturing what Paul is really trying to get across. Because what we expect Paul to say is that to live is gain and to die is Christ. Like, that's what we pray for. When we encounter someone who's sick, we pray that, Lord, heal them, help them to live and have a good life so that when they die, they can go and be in heaven with Jesus, right? Generally, that's what we pray for. But that's not what Paul's saying. So that that can't be it. Another thing we might expect is for Paul to say, to live for Christ and to die is gain. Words are important, right? To live for Christ. So in other words, to live in the service of Christ is good, and then to die, we're gonna get our reward in heaven. Is that what Paul's talking about? Well, no, that's not it either. You know, to live, you can live for something. Like, you can live for your family, uh, and, and what that means is you're living kind of in service of this really, really important thing, this thing that you love and believe in. But what he actually says is to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So if I say I'm living for my family, what that means is I think my family's really important, and I'm, I'm gonna serve them. I'm, they're kind of my driving purpose. But when I say life is family, that means something else, doesn't it? it? It means that my family is the source of my life. It's all encompassing. And I think that's what Paul is getting at about Christ. He says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So in other words, all my joy, all my purpose, all my life's value and meaning comes from Christ and is given back to Christ. And when something is the source and driving force of your life, it directly affects how you view your death. So if basketball is my life, which is not, by the way, um, I'm not, I'm not yeah, anyway, go sports. Uh, if basketball, just hypothetically, was my life, and from a young, like, young age, I was all about basketball, playing every pickup game, playing every time I could get my hands on a ball in hopes of one day being the next, you know, uh, 
who, I can't even think of a basketball player's name. That's how in love I am with the sport. Um, you know, the next NBA star, right? And, but then the first day of my NBA career, I suffer a career-ending, life-altering injury. Well, if that happens, my life is over, isn't it? What Paul is saying is that his identification with Christ means that his death is actually gain. It's not the end. Because when you're in Christ, death is not the end. It's, it's an open door to experience his unveiled glory. Reminds me that Paul uh, described a vision, kind of a prophetic vision that he had in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 3 through 4. I think, this is just Ryan talking, I didn't get this from people who are smarter than me, but I think that Paul had this in mind when he was writing this to the Philippians. So this is a vision that he's having, right? And he's trying to describe it to the, another church, the Corinthian church. He says, yes, only God knows whether I was in my body or outside of my body. In other words, something very, very real was happening. This is a real experience he had. But I do know that I was caught up to paradise and heard things so astounding that they cannot be expressed in words, things no human is allowed to tell. Paul, what's he describing? He's describing a vision of the unveiled majesty and power and holiness of Jesus in heaven. And what he's saying is that it's so pristine and perfect that even to try to fit it into small human words would be to cheapen it. I think that's what he's thinking about when he says to die is gain because that is his destiny. And when we identify with Christ, when Christ becomes the source of our life and the purpose of our life, that becomes our destiny. We identify with Christ, with his death on the cross, and then with his exaltation at the right hand of God. And maybe for you, this fear that comes in facing people who do not believe what you believe about Jesus, maybe it is uh, really difficult because you've never really identified fully with Christ. Because if the source of your life is anything else, anything else other than Jesus, then you haven't experienced the real viral gospel. And because of that, death and opposition cannot possibly be joyful. So the viral gospel is unstoppable. Paul talks about how it changes our identity. And now he talks about how it changes what we actually do. So let's look in verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a, manner, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come to you uh, or only see, I'm sorry, when I, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. 
Aren't you glad you came to church today? Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So whatever happens, Paul writes, whether I live or die, whether you suffer or flourish, conduct yourselves in in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Worthy of the gospel of Christ. So Brett McCracken, uh, going back to that book, Uncomfortable, he says this, and I think it's really helpful. He says, the church is imperfect, messy, maddening, and at times mundane. Have you ever wondered what the job of a pastor is like? That gets you close to the entirety of it. But, but the church is the body of Christ, the organism God has chosen to physically manifest the Son to the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. So how do we conduct ourselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel? And Paul gives us three things, three statements. In verse 27, he talks about standing firm in one spirit. In verse 28, he talks about not being frightened. In verse 29, he says, suffering for him. So these are like three traits of people who are conducting themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. So standing firm in one spirit, in verse 27. So the picture here is, is not like, like don't picture someone standing by themselves facing the opposition. Picture soldiers standing shoulder to shoulder with shields out. In fact, this is a, a military formation uh, brought on by the Greeks, probably Alexander the Great, and it's called, I'm gonna try to pronounce this right, the phalanx, something like that, you may know. So this is the movie Gladiator. I'm not gonna recommend it because I might get emails. But you, you kind of see, you see what it's like. So they're shoulder to shoulder. They've got the shields out and then the spears out. And the idea is that these are an elite, a small elite force of, of soldiers uh, fighting together as a compact unit. And what's required is that every soldier uh, is convinced that his comrades aren't gonna retreat or leave him behind. And this military formation, scholars believe, is what brought on the Greek transformation of the world. Alexander the Great. Uh, and, and they called it, scholars, some scholars call it, the invincible beast. It's not about, for us, it's not about fighting people. It's about uniting together in Christ for the advance of the gospel. So that's, that's standing firm in one spirit. And that's part of why we, we're calling this series in Philippians together, because we're never meant to do this alone. Uh, the second phrase is not being frightened. So the word frightened here um, is, is the word in Greek that conjures up the idea of like a startle reflex, right? So picture like the uncontrolled stampede of horses who were spooked. And what Paul is saying is don't get spooked. Like when it comes to that moment when you're sitting down and you actually, like it's your turn to speak the words, the truth, the words of the gospel in a loving and gentle way with someone who does not believe yet. Don't back down. Be confident. Be calm, right? Because you're sharing the gospel and there's power in the gospel. You can do it. And finally, he says, suffering for him. Uh, I want to show you uh, verse 27. He says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, 
not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. This word granted here shares the same word, the same root word in the Greek as the word we use for grace. It has been graced, gifted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Suffering for Christ, Paul is saying, is not a requirement, it's a gift. It's a gift. We're graced because when we suffer for Jesus, what we're actually doing is suffering with Jesus because Jesus has already gone to the cross for us and we get to go to the cross with him, metaphorically. And anyone who dies with Christ and suffers with Christ will also be exalted with Christ and be comforted and experience unspeakable joy in the end. You know, it's one thing to accept and resign to suffering as just a part of life. It's a totally different thing to realize that it's actually a privilege. So I just wanted to end with this story. Um, you know, what does this feel like on the other end? Because if you're, if you're in the club, if you're a Christian, you know, we've got kind of this insider speak. Some of you remember what it was like to be on the other side. Uh, some of us really don't because we grew up in this. And that's, that's kind of my story. Now, uh, there's a book that I've kind of slowly been reading uh, over the past few weeks, and it's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And it's, it's talking about the power of Christian hospitality to transform lives and to, to bring the gospel to bear. So it's written by uh, this woman named Ros- Rosaria uh, Butterfield. Uh, she, in the 90s, she was a rising star in the kind of intellectually elite uh, crew of English um, and textual studies. She was a professor at Syracuse University. She was a strong feminist, and she was out to change the world, and the way she wanted to do that was by destroying the church. So if you remember Promise Keepers, it was this kind of convention that would happen uh, with godly men gathering and to seek, to seek God and become better um, husbands and fathers and brothers and all of that. It was great, great movement. But she wrote this open letter uh, trying to uh, destroy it. So in response to the letter, one of the leaders of the movement, his name was Ken, who's a pastor, invited her over to his home with his wife, Floyd. And so she started coming to, like, she came to a Bible study, and she was doing research to write a book to destroy Christianity. Now, listen to how she explains, uh, she describes her experience. She says, every week, one or the other, uh, Ken or Floyd, would check in either by phone or email. It became easier to join them for weekly meals than to dodge them. Don't get me wrong, the Smiths weren't pests or stalkers, but they were unshakably present. Ken and Floyd prayed for me, their arch enemy, every day. They thought about me and they prayed for me like I was their own daughter. I was secretly smitten with Ken and Floyd's hospitality. The people who gathered at the Smith house were deep, practiced, thoughtful, even if I thought they were dead wrong. They also read the Bible differently than any other book I'd ever seen people open up in a public setting. 
In prayer, she writes, they talked to God as if they were on good terms with him. And here I was, an enemy, writing a book against these people, and here I was, enjoying myself in spite of the vast worldview divide. Guys, this is what, this is what the real gospel feels like. It feels like dinner. It feels like conversation. It feels like friendship. I think that's what God has for us as we, as we seek to obey him and continue the movement. So let's pray. God, thank you that you have invited us to be transformed, to be given real hope, to be given real joy, uh, to be reconciled to you. Thank you, God, that you didn't turn the shoulder to us, but you came to us yourself in the form of your son, Jesus, and you paid the ultimate price for us. God, I pray if there's anyone here today that has not yet accepted that incredible gift, that they would do that before they get up from their chair today. And God, for those of us who have said yes to you, uh, but Lord, we, we're struggling because we're afraid of actually saying the words. I pray that you would fill us with courage. Help us with our Christian brothers and sisters to develop a godly, gentle, loving strategy to, to bring the gospel to bear in the lives of people that you love and that we love. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.